Each one of the tortellini is a fingerprint. It can never be reproduced. It's a moment in time, each one being three seconds or so. Every single shape that is produced by every single pasta maker in the world is frozen in time. Welcome to the Meals That Made Me from First We Feast. I'm Adam Richmond, your host and resident gastronaut. The meals that we make, enjoy, and share are the heart of who we are. In this series, you'll hear from 10 guests across the culinary world sharing funny, illuminating, and touching stories prompted by their most meaningful food memories. And maybe you'll even be inspired to make a few memorable meals of your own. So let's dive in. With me today is someone that I love and respect and admire on a very personal level. It's Evan Funke, a two-time James Beard Award-nominated chef based in Los Angeles. He's known as a culinary storyteller, a master of the old-world techniques and culture of handmade pasta. His critically acclaimed cookbook, American Sforlino, shares classic techniques from the region of Emilia-Romana, and went on to win the 2020 IACP Award for Best Cookbook, Chefs in Restaurants, and most recently received a 2020 James Beard Foundation Award for Best Photography. Welcome, Evan! Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Now, this is a fact. Evan and I actually met at Windy City Smokeout, And I watched my manager, my road mom, who I auditioned for when she was a (laughs) casting director, not only fawn over you. So her name is Eileen Stringer. And um, we've been together for years and I love her dearly. I have never seen her so starstruck. Like she talked to me about you from a distance. She's like, that's that's Evan Fugue. He's made the best pasta I've ever had. Like, and she's been with me, you know, I remember we we ate with the great Ben Shuri in Australia and what have you. She straight like forgot about me. She came at Evan like a freight train and straight up started courting him and she signed you. She's your manager now, right? That's right. She's the best. She's the, she's best. the best. So shout out Eileen Cowan Stringer. We love you. I'm sorry for all the headaches I give you, but hopefully <laughs> Evan's talent, his stability and his incredible gifts make up for the headache I cause. Now I've eaten at Felix. And I think it is a bold move to serve carbs in LA, but goddamn, if you don't make carbs so worth it on every level, it is thank you spectacular. And don't think for a split second that it's just the breads and the pastas. In fact, while recording another episode of The Meals That Made Me with the iconic Ghetto Gastro team. And shout out to Evan. Shout out to Evan. Shout, shout out to, to Mother's Evan, Wolf. Sure. Mother's oh, Wolf and that focaccia uh-huh. and those gambas. When I mentioned I was working with you, they started mentioning shrimp dishes and mentioning proteins that I think people are not aware of your oeuvre, especially because the cover of your book, you have that magnificent old pin. And yeah. I think that it's remarkable. But actually, Eileen gave me some skinny on you. Oh. I didn't realize that your dad is like a major special effects wizard. Is that right? Yeah, man. He's a three-time Oscar winner for special effects, couple of BAFTAs. Whoa. He's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of chefs that I admire 
and respect, but there's only uh-huh. one person that I've ever really wanted to be like, and that's my dad. What an awesome thing. Because he's an absolute, absolute master of his craft. And the work ethic that, you know, I experienced while I was growing up, you know, watching him work so many hours, staying on set for, you know, multiple days at a time, coming home with his, you know, head cracked open for from a jib falling down. You know, like, what? the guy's just a monster. It's a monster. You know, he's, he's been in the business for 60 years, and he's so well-respected by his peers. And, and an extraordinary storyteller. And I think that's where I get this, I don't know, need to tell stories. It just so happens my medium is through food, through pasta, uh, the culinary storytelling. Well, let's not let's not hide your light under a bushel because quite frankly, what you're able to do with pasta, and I say this with zero askissery involved, I mean, like I said, you know, Eileen is no stranger to good food. And I mean, for her to say unequivocally, you make the single best pasta she has ever eaten, I think that speaks volumes. But I love that despite the fact that you really are at the vanguard of where pasta is heading in this country, that rather than go through this very scientific route, that the shapes that you've learned are from nonas throughout Italy. You mm-hmm. went to La Vecchia Scuola Bolognese yes. in Bologna, mm-hmm. and uh, that was really what sort of changed the course of your life. Is that fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. And, you know, I found myself in a dead end job as a chef de cuisine at some hotel in Beverly Hills, and I was extremely lost. So I decided to go get even more lost and move to Italy in 2007 and found myself under the extraordinarily gifted hand of, of Alessandro Spizni, a love like school of Bolognese. Tell me how long you've been making this shape. So six years old, she's been making this shape. It's amazing. She was the one to kind of open the door for me to continue to start seeking out other pasta makers that still practice 100% by hand. And more and more in modern times, there are less and less young people who are committed to uh, taking on these these crafts. If you you know, rewind 50, 60 years ago in Italy, it was an absolute that you had to know how to do these things. Um, but now with, with the internet and Instagram and violin practice and soccer practice and all that stuff, you know, <laughs> less and less young people are inclined to sit down with their grandmothers or their mothers or their aunts to learn this ancient craft. So I kind of offered myself over the last, you know, 14, 15 years as a godson to these women who don't necessarily have uh, the ability to pass on this word of mouth, these extraordinarily old culinary histories. I can already tell that she's production speed. She's a machine. You hear her rhythm? Well, we touched a little bit on your childhood and your incredible dad and his incredible feats and this notion of passing on tradition to children. So Mm. let's start with question number one, nostalgia and the early meals of your childhood. You grew up in a pretty big family in Pacific Palisades, California. Yep. Your mom is making meals for five kids. (laughs) So I'd love to hear more about what food meant to you growing up 
So when I was growing up, you know, my mom had to cook for seven people on a daily basis. So, you know, I grew up eating macaroni and cheese and overcooked hamburgers, and <laughs> but also other things like goulash and pesto genovese and ragu bolognese. And, and that comes from my mom's childhood. My mom was raised by kind of like a group of Italian families in North Beach in San Francisco. And my family's from California since 1848 very uh, long-standing California family. And she was, her mom worked for the U.S. Army during the late 40s into the 50s, and she wasn't home a lot. So these Italian families kind of raised my mom uh -huh. and taught her some of these recipes from Genoa, from Bologna. And one of my oldest culinary memories is walking up the stairs to JJ's house. JJ was uh, this kind of uh, mother to my mom. Uh, walking up the carpeted stairs and smelling cigarette smoke and ragu bolognese <laughs> as I went up the stairs. And when I moved to Bologna, I smelled those same things. I smelled the diesel fuel and the cigarette smoke and the melting pork fat and the roasting bones. Amazing. <laughs> and that kind of guided me into shaping my ragu bolognese, obviously having a firm footing in tradition, but never allowing tradition to, you know, block respectful progression. You know, when people ask me, what's your favorite dish? What's your favorite, you know, pasta shape? I hate that question. And and it's it's just a body of work. It's a body of work. It's impossible to, you know, pinpoint something that I like best. There are dishes that absolutely have defined my career, for sure. We can get into that later, but absolutely, there's not one, you know, one thing. Fair enough. That's what I tell people when I take my shirt off at the beach. It's just it's a body of work. <laughs> that you I know, forgot how funny you are, man. Oh, yeah. looks are and everything. <laughs> but no, I, I love it, and I had no idea. And this is a serious question before we move on to the meals of your mentors. And I mean this in earnest. I watched in advance of this interview, the great Alessandra Spisny cooking and her daughter was translating for her. Mm. And I could have watched that hypnotic way she works with that oh. massive, massive pin. But it's a muscular physical event. And I'm asking this in earnest. Do mm. you think that your massage training, I mean this very seriously, do you think that there's any impact uh, with your touch and your feel of the dough? Absolutely. I would say at least 80% of pasta making is about body mechanics. And in order to rep out, you know, two, three, four thousand pieces of any one shape, whether it's troffier or tortellini or whatever, you have to be very comfortable. So being aware of how your body stance is uh, in accordance with how you're making pasta is extremely important to me. Not a lot of people talk about body mechanics and comfort level when they're talking about kitchen prep. So it's one thing that I hammer down on all of the pasta makers that come through Felix or through Mother Wolf. You've got to be comfortable. You have to stand up straight and you've got to pay attention to the muscles in your body and make sure that you're in a good place. Otherwise, you're going to be bent over and you're going to be in pain and you're not going to like it. So I think that it's very much a part of how I make pasta. And I think my knowledge of the muscular structure has definitely made an impact on how I make pasta for sure. It's a good question. 
So let's move on to your mentors. As I said, you know, you went to the motherland, you know, it's like going to Jerusalem, you know, to learn how to make sabich or falafel, I guess. But one of your first jobs out of culinary school was working with First We Feast Familia, the Austrian little man, Wolfgang Puck, <laughs> himself with Wolfgang Puck. You were hungry to learn, prove yourself. You end up working with Wolfgang at the iconic yeah. Spago in Beverly yeah. Hills for six years, correct? Yeah, I worked for Wolf a total of six years. 18 months of that was at his catering facility where I got my first job, and, and I, I got quite cocky. And I said, <laughs> okay, you think you're hot shit? We're kicking you up to, you know, to you the major leagues. You Spago. Yeah. So then you have to left Spago. Yeah. But after you left Spago, you decided you went to Bologna in 2007. Yeah, I'll tail end of 2007. And then you learned under Alessandra Spizni at La Vecchia Scuola Bolognese. Yes. And she kind of took you under her wing, and you always credit mm. her for being the person who truly taught you how to make pasta. So my question is, what is a special meal that you either made or had with Alessandra that will forever live in your memory? So I want you right now, bring us into that kitchen, you know, the smells, the sights, what's happening while that meal was being prepared. Take us there. There's so many that were so impactful in Bologna. I think I changed quite a bit as a human mentally and uh, spiritually and emotionally in Bologna. Mm -hmm. So I think if I was to pinpoint a single dish that changed my life was Alessandra's tortellini in brodo. I'm getting chills thinking about it. Uova e farina è l'abilità della persona che si mette lì, studia, si inventa per trovare qualcosa di buono e fare contento il commensale, che non vuol dire solo nutrirsi, vuol dire mangiare, you know, mangiare. Tortellini is the mark of the true sfoglino, the true pasta maker. Speed, accuracy, precision, balance, elegance. And, and when you watch Alessandra roll sfoglia, um, it's quite a bit like a ballet. And there's such a knowing movement with her. It's a complete meditation for her. And it comes from a place of extraordinary love. So you have to kind of watch the process full circle from ball to sfoglia to cutting the squares to shaping the tortellini and then the making of the brodo and then eating of the brodo uh, with the tortellini. And uh, I, can't, I can't even put into words. The fullness of this dish spoke to me in so many ways and it was really kind of the fuel to continue. And each one of the tortellini is a fingerprint. It's a it, it's an NFT, if you will. <laughs> it can never be it can never be reproduced. It's a it's a it's a moment in time. Each one being three seconds or so. It's a small moment in time. And I, I fell in love with this concept that every single shape that is produced by every single pasta maker mm -hmm. in the world is frozen in time. And you know, it sounds a bit corny, but for me, it has a lot of gravity mm -hmm. because that dish is so complex and so deeply rooted in the history of Bologna and Modena and, you know, Reggio Emilia in different iterations. It's so deeply rooted that it's something that is celebrated every single day in those places. So that was the dish that really kind of made it the, the biggest impact for me. 
was hurt. And Alessandra is the Mike Tyson of uh, Bolognese. Is that right? For me. Like, I, I don't think that there's a better cook in the entire region. We're going to move on to the emotionally somatic meals of your heart after a word from our sponsor. Now, we talked about Alessandra, and she became your mentor, but quite a few women have as well. Mm. Now, I'm, of course, referring to the grandmothers, the nonnas, who you were able to cook with while filming your incredibly brilliant docuseries, The Shape of Pasta. Now, I've been fortunate enough to cook with one or two, once in Naples, where I learned how to make gnocchi, mm. and at a restaurant called La Mamma Mia in Chelsea, London, where I learned how to make my bolognese, if you will, from a lady from Sassuolo. Mm. And I can say from my much more limited experience, it's not like a traditional cooking class because it's at once both free form and incredibly rigorous. It's warm mm. and loving, yet completely nerve wracking. <laughs> and there's no rules, but there's rules. So my question for you is, what is one meal you made alongside a nonna that just solidified why you do what you do and why you are so in love with and obsessed with pasta and Italian cuisine. So I guess what I really want from you is to not only just tell us about the meal, but what was it like being in her kitchen? Actually, I want to point to the Strangulette episode in Shape of Pasta. This is uh, Nonna Cristina. I still can't watch this episode to this day because I get very emotional about it. You know, we were filming in Chivita, which is in the deep south, a very rugged landscape. You know, the things there are very hard won, including, you know, financial stability. And uh, her family has a restaurant at the top of the hill. So we were filming Strangulette there, which is a very kind of simple shape that is embossed on a an ancient weaving loom. So we were filming and, and it came to lunch break and she's an extraordinarily loving woman with just the most beautiful energy. So we break for lunch and, you know, the production unit had chosen a place for lunch. So we all hop in the cars and we go down the hill. And we sit down to lunch, and we enter this restaurant to this very kind of brusque, you know, greeting. <laughs> and it's, it's a male chef, and we walk in, we sit down, and one of the PAs says to me, you know, oh, shit, this is Christina's former restaurant that her brother-in-law stole from her. Whoa. And I was like, oh, shit, we can't stay. I can't stay. So I grab the, you know, the showrunner and we get back in the car and we go up, back up the hill to Christina's new restaurant. And I tell her to her face, there's no way I'm eating at that restaurant because I heard what he did to you. And she just like starts bawling, crying. I'm, I'm almost getting emotional now just thinking about it. And then she says, sit down. So I sit down with the showrunner and she proceeds to just make me one of the most extraordinary meals. Sorry. <laughs> Take a moment. This is why I think it's breathtaking how a meal could do this. 
how a meal that you haven't had in years is bringing you to tears right now. And I'm, I admit I'm getting kind of choked up yeah. just following along. Just um, extraordinary, life-changing. What did she make you? She made me the strangulette. It's a very simple dish. It's just, you know, salsa di pomodoro, basil, a smashed clove of garlic, and ricotta salata. And that was it. We had a little bit of wine or whatever, and it was just, I don't know, the simplicity belies the history and the work behind it. And that's, you know, that's why I do what I do. The strangle and bring something special because Evan is very attached to this. He was very emotional, was given to Evan in Calabria. And you think her tears came from your profoundly beautiful expression of loyalty or just the fact that you cared enough about her to learn that story and say, I'm choosing you over this other opportunity I have. Yeah, I think it was a lot of things. I think it was that. And I think it, you know, so many of these families, I mean, every family that I've ever sat with to make pasta, pasta is both necessary for life and also necessary for mm -hmm. their social structure. So I just find it very, very beautiful that, you know, if, if you if you walk into a grocery store, okay, walk into a grocery store and you see all these shapes of pastas, every single shape of pasta that exists today was at one time made by hand by a woman. And all of this natural ingenuity of creating shapes was simply driven by the fact that that woman needed to hide the fact that their family was going to eat the same shit that day, flour and water. Mm -hmm. And all of these extraordinarily naturally engineered shapes are driven by that fact. You're going to eat flour and water today. How can we hide it? That's, and, and every single pasta that exists today has a story connected to it, has a family history connected to it. All those ancestral shapes, modern pasta cannot be understood unless you understand ancient pasta. Full stop. Before we move on, if you had to describe that moment with the strangulette, with Nona Cristina, mm. in one word, mm -hmm. how would you describe that meal? Monumental. Like I say, sometimes one word's all it takes. I love that. So because we obviously are dealing with this profoundly emotional moment, one of the things I've always loved about you and the things you've said, and I think that it'd be strange for people to hear when they see the profound success you've had. You've had a television show, two deeply successful restaurants. Obviously, your respect of your peers is immense. But you have often said, and I apologize if I'm paraphrasing here, failure has been your guiding light throughout your journey in the culinary world. And I always appreciated this because since the bravura that most chef possess seems to come from a degree of swagger and success mm. rather than embracing your failures that you know there's a director named ann bogart who talks to her company and she says you know good failure fail harder you know mm. the japanese have a saying like you worked hard work harder mm. but i love that you you talk about that and i have to imagine that in learning, and I looked this up, and I want you to correct me here, but in trying to perfect over 160 different shapes of pasta, is that right? It's it's 155. There's some dialectal crossover, but 155, yeah. 155 different shapes of pasta. 
of all of the incredible, beautiful, edible origami that you make, which shape to you mm. has been the most challenging to perfect? What meal features it? And I want to know everything. Like, how many attempts? Did you ever feel like giving up? What was that Rubik's Cube shape for you? Oh, man. This is really hard. So much failure. I would say the most difficult is the Rashketedi Mishkeju. That's hard to say. It sounds Russian, I know. Rashketedi Mishkeju. So Rashketedi is, it means to scratch. It's a form of strashinati, which means to, you know, stretch. Uh, pull up something like that to, to stretch over is it like know, a border surface. Like when you hear strachetel and, and... Strachetel is kind of like to tear, but ah. strashinati is to like pull across. So it's, again, it's, a another episode in shape of pasta and you have to realize that having the privilege of shooting that series changed me so deeply because this was the first time where I was able to have unlimited access and typically you know a lot of my learning was done by finding it in books and then going to that town and then getting lost and going to the corner cafe and somehow getting myself, you know, invited to lunch or dinner to go make pasta with somebody. And so this was like the first time where this was set up and we knew it going into uh, via the production company. We set it up to sit down with, uh, with Teresa. And this shape is so hard to master. I still don't really have it down because the mix of the flour is is very hard to nail down. It's a mix of fava bean flour and semolina or semola. Okay. And the reason why the flour mix exists is because flour is very hard one in this area of uh, of Italy. It's very rocky. You know, wheat does not grow very easily in this area. So they would mix not only because of that, because it comes from the Lucucina povera, but also because it has more nutrition than the wheat. So this is a pasta shape that you would eat to go back to work in the fields. (laughs) And it's a shape that's basically done with eight fingers, pulling it towards you and allowing the pasta and the gluten matrix to curl up and over your fingertips, creating this kind of ginger snap cookie shaped pasta with ridges in it. It's so cool so extraordinarily difficult. I still haven't really mastered it. We touched on this earlier, and I'm dying to know, after all, this is the meals that made me, what was the, if there could be a dish or a shape that was the breakthrough, that was you shattering the gluten ceiling, if you will, shattering this folia of the people that just knew Francesco Rinaldi and Ronzoni <sighs> and Buitoni, Shout out you, Tony Spaceman, and my mom who would serve me those in the wagon wheels. Um, but, you know, we now live in a day and age where Jimmy Kimmel is making pastina for his children, you mm. know, and, and, and infusing oil with garlic and fava and such. Was there a breakthrough dish for you as a career chef that people, you know, sit up and take notice of you and of your gift? I think it, it would have to be Cacio Pepe. Really? I've, you know, it's the foundation of, I would say, the foundational dish of my career. When I got back from Italy in, in 08, yeah. I took over a restaurant called Rustic Canyon. It's a very famous restaurant. And Jer- mm-hmm. Jeremy Fox runs it now, extraordinarily talented guy. But when I took over Rustic Canyon, it was a small neighborhood restaurant. And, you know, 
all I wanted to do was That's make good, pasta. Right? So who's making this? Nobody in the U.S., as far as I know, nobody's doing this. It's just so on the verge of extinction. It's so archaic. Nice work. But I couldn't. You know, they had a burger on. We had to do salad. We had to do soup, all these other things, roast chicken, yada, yada. But all I wanted to do was make pasta. And I wanted to make cacio pepe. And at that time, because I checked, this is how I know this, nobody in Los Angeles was making cacio pepe on a menu. I checked everybody. And for good reason. So I put it on the menu and nobody touched it because nobody knew what it was. And it was on the menu for months and nobody would touch it. And I couldn't understand because this is one of the most quintessential Roman pasta dishes. So famous. So like a good drug dealer, I started sending it out to people for free <laughs> to get the, gate, the gateway drug. And it took off. Wow. It took off. And so Cacio Pepe, again... So simple, the the difference between an extraordinary cacio pepe that is ethereal and one that is mediocre is a very, very fine line there. For sure. So, and in order to get to that point, I had saturated myself with cacio pepe. I ate it for almost 30 days straight in order to find the music in the middle. And I ate the worst ones at like Termini Station and the most life-changing ones at, you know, Da Cesare. And everything in between, mm-hmm. because I wanted to see what the worst was and what the best was. So, cacio pepe to me is one of those dishes that have that has defined my career, and now it's a household name. I mean, they got like you know Lay's potato chips, cacio pepe. Right, right. You know, it's it's a it's a household name. But I think again, so for listeners who may be unaware, so it's one of the most amazing dishes because the ingredients are essentially right in the name: cheese and pepper. It's to me, I always think of Rome without question, but so amazing is every chef has a different interpretation of it. I went to Ostia Antica to a restaurant called Sora Margarita, and a woman there named Margarita, wonderful nonna in her own right, was making agnolotti cacio e pepe by mm-hmm. hand. Mm-hmm. And um, I always tell people cacio e pepe to me is like what Tim Wakefield said about the knuckleball. I could show you how to throw it in an afternoon, but it will take you a lifetime to know how to throw it for a strike. Very well said. That the pasta, the addition of the starchy water, the amount of cheese, the total, like little things. In fact, if you watch the uh, Bradley Cooper movie Burnt, he throws in a little uh, jab at Sienna Miller and he says, you got to toast the peppercorns for your cacio. Now I want to take you, much like Doc Brown, into the future. And what meals you hope to have. Is there a type of pasta that you have yet to make? What is it and what's a meal or a sauce you would make it with? And I want details. Mm. Or is there a, a reinterpretation of a dish? No, I would never you do know, that. Because like you said. I would never do it. I don't, I, don't, I don't have. Why do you say that? Because I, I, don't, I don't have the license to do that. You know, I, I, I'll leave that type of evolution to evolution and revolution to you know, Carlo Cracco and, and Massimo Batura because those guys are Italian and I don't feel comfortable exercising that type of license. Okay. You know, I I am a student and a lot of people call me a master. I am not a master. I am a student of what I do as respectfully as I possibly can be. So, you know, f- for me to come up with my own pasta shape or change something so so near and dear to me 
through ego or whatever. It's just, it's just not me. I, I want to pay homage and respect to, to these extraordinary histories and these people that have bestowed on me their history because they find it important. Bon appétito. Bon appétito. Oh, man. La paste perfettamente. Allora, ti è piaciuto questo ragù? And that's my legacy, my, my mentorship and my respect for this craft. That's my legacy that I will leave behind. So I'm just not, not going to do it. Now, before I let you go, we always want to leave our listeners with a little bit of a rapid fire segment. So I'm going to hit you with a few questions. There's no right. There's no wrong. It's just Evan. All right. Ready? Send it. Send it. Best pizza topping. Buffalo mozzarella. Good choice. Best vegetable to eat raw. Cucumber. Deep cut. Favorite cookbook of all time. Flavors of France by Alain Ducasse. Classic. Favorite condiment. My wife's gonna hate me. Ketchup. Best dip for French fries. Mayonnaise. Okay, Belgian. I see you. I see you. Favorite eating city. Los Angeles. Nice. Favorite eating country? Italy. All the way. Favorite fast food item? Ah, oh, man. <laughs> McDonald's cheeseburger. Classic. Soft, pillowy magnificence. Favorite kitchen appliance? Coffee maker. Do you do the press? Do you do Keurig? Do you do I, the pour over? I do everything. I have Chemex. I have a regular coffee guy. I have an espresso machine, I have pour over, I have French press, I am a coffee slut. Back at you, man. Shout out to my serious gourmet shit mug. <laughs> okay, favorite song you like to cook to? I actually don't play music when I cook. Really? Too no. distracting? I just don't. I have the music in my head. I don't need to hear it. But you're making Tonarelli. What song do you hear in your head? You know what, I play a lot of uh, Luciano Pavarotti, and there's a song called Vukella, and it has a beautiful melody. Look it up, Vukella. It's a, uh, a Napolitana folk song that he sings. Beautiful. All right, now this is, I always have one special question that's just for that guest, and this is for you. Mm. Based on its style, shape, complexity, and layers of nuance, if you were a pasta shape and sauce, what would you, Evan Funke, be? Lasagna bolognese. Really? Can yeah. I ask why? There's layers to this shit, player. <laughs> that was very, that was cheap. That was super cheap. No, it wasn't, man. No, it wasn't. And you also, you got <laughs> sauce. You got the sauce. You median, you got the sauce. You got layers. I love it. Evan, you are absolutely a legend. Thank Eileen you. is going to love this. We Thank got the you. double Eileen Stringer client connection. I loved you when I first met you. Love you even more now. I hope everyone got a chance to know how much heart really goes in. Like listening to you, seeing, I mean, I'm moved by even remembering your emotional reaction to this. I think it just shows that good people make the best food and that as twee and as sentimental as it may be, that when you when you really do put love and put your own soul and your own journey into your food, it really always ends up being the best. And you unequivocally do that. And you've taken what most people might look at noodles and Sunday gravy to this art form, to this pleasurable experience. And 
for your food, for your wisdom, for your patience and for your time today, Evan. I thank you so much from thank the bottom you. of my heart. Salute, felicidad y amor. <laughs> thank you so much. You're I really legend, enjoyed it. Of course. Thank well, thank you for joining us on the Meals That Made Me. We hope you enjoyed this career-spanning interview with the legend Evan Funke, and we hope that you are inspired to dive deeper into the meals of your childhood, your mentors, your travels, and the meals that continue to take you places now and into the future. So join us next time as we explore yet another one of my culinary heroes, Kenji Lopez, and learn more about the meals that made him. Stay tuned for some insight on upcoming meals he'll be cooking up in the upcoming weeks. This podcast is produced by First We Feast in collaboration with Complex Networks. Our host is me, Adam Richmond. Our executive producers are Chris Schoenberger, Nicola Lynch, and Justin Bolas. Our head of podcast production is Jen Stewart. Our supervising producer is Shiva Bayat. Our senior producer is Jocelyn Aram. Our associate producers are Nina Pollock and Catherine Hernandez. Our production managers are Shamara Rochester and Natasha Bennett. Our recording engineer and sound designer is Andrew Guastella. Thanks to the team at BuzzFeed. For more First We Feast content, head to youtube.com slash firstwefeast or at firstwefeast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you enjoy these interviews and you want to hear more, then please drop a five-star review and we... We'll see you next time on The Meals That Made Me.